I want to talk a few minutes this morning about Elijah, but just a few minutes only as an introductory to the thought that uh, I really want to get into. And I want us to look at the political situation in which Elijah found himself before we really get into uh, the story, quick story about him. 1 Kings 16, verses 29 through 33, In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel, and Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And it came to pass, as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. Then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a wooden image. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And so Elijah comes on the scene during this man's reign. And Elijah, a prophet of God, and he's faced with this. And right after he comes on the scene, he proclaims a, 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 there's going to be a, a, a drought. And it doesn't rain for three and a half years. And I'm not going to go into the whole story because I just want to get to a point And then we'll stop talking about it. But also, Elijah, in his time, had a contest with the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah, which we don't seem to remember sometimes. But there are 450 prophets of Baal, 400 400 prophets of Asherah. And they had a contest with Elijah about whose God, their images, or the real God, could start a fire and make the image or make the offering uh, burn. And so during the prophets of uh, Baal and they're trying to get this sacrifice burned, they, they couldn't do it. God, their God, Baal could not make fire come down and, and burn his image and Elijah's making or, or burn their sacrifice and Elijah's making fun of them because they, he can't do it. Ridiculing them. And then it comes Elijah's time to uh, get the, 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 the sacrifice burned and he builds the altar and he puts the sacrifice on it, pours water on it, dug, dig, dug a trench around it and filled it with water and then he calls on God and God, the fire comes down and it consumes the sacrifice, the rocks of the altar, the trench is dried up And Elijah uses this time to excite the people to get rid of the prophets of Baal, and so they're all killed. And so Elijah has done a great thing for God, showing his people who God is instead of being some image. And and he should be very satisfied that he's able to do that, that he does serve the living God. But Ahab goes to Jezreel and... and, uh, Elijah does as well. And in 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 through 4, And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with a sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, 
So let the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under a broom tree, and he prayed that he might die and said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. So Elijah, as I mentioned, he's done a great thing for his people in showing them who was the living God. But now Jezebel is chasing him. She wants him dead now. And so he goes. He goes to to, um, Beersheba, and then he goes a day's journey into the wilderness, and he's just ready to die. He's feeling sorry for himself. He's feeling sorry for himself, and when he is asked why by the angel of the Lord, uh, in verse 10, he says, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. He repeats that same thing a few verses later. But in his mind, he alone is the only one in all the world that's serving God. But God explains the reality in verse 18. When God said, Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, every mouth that has not kissed him. Elijah just doesn't know that. He doesn't know that there's other people that are serving God. He thinks he's alone and he's just ready to die. He's ready to give up. And I wanted to, to transition to the fact that God knows his people. God knows who his people are. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 3, it says, But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. God knows who his people are. If we love him, he knows that. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 19, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Solid foundation. Having this seal, that God, the Lord knows those who are his people. There's this seal guarantees authenticity in God's eyes, that they really are his people. The seal is based upon God's infinite knowledge of all that's happening. Keep in mind, seven billion, they say, people in the world, and God knows out of all the people in the world, he knows the scriptures say the few who serve him. You know, men can overlook things. Men can make mistakes, but God never does. And he never overlooks a single person. So what makes one eligible for this seal? Why would he seal some and not others? Those that name the name of Christ are, and those who depart from iniquity. We have to quit doing the sinning and start doing what God said do. So... A question, what does God see in his people? And what is different that God doesn't see in just everybody? Turn with me to Matthew 7. Matthew 7. <clears throat> Matthew 7. 
Matthew 7. We want to read verses 21 through 23. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. I guess I better get to Matthew instead of Mark, huh? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And I think about the fact that there are millions of people that claim to follow God. That if you ask them, they would say, yes, I do. I, I know the Lord. But God says, all of these, a lot of these religious people, many will say to me in that day, we, have we not prophesied your name, cast out demons, done many wonderful works in your name? I never knew you. I never knew you. It's not that the relationship, the relationship was not broken. There was no relationship ever, God says. Never a relationship. Turn with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to read verses 9 through 11. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So he lists a, a litany of people who, uh, a list of people who, of sins that he says will not, the people that do that will not inherit the kingdom of God. He said, you were some, that was you. You were, that was. You, such were some of you. But you've been washed and you've been sanctified, it, to make holy, to separate from the bad things of the world, to separate to God. You washed has to be referring to the washing of baptism that takes away our sin. Romans chapter 6 and verse 3 and 4. And they were justified. You were justified to render innocent to be righteous. That's what God sees. God sees that in his people. Now, acquitted of all charges. God sees one who doesn't look like everybody else. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 4, one is raised to walk in newness of life. That's the grave of baptism that we are... Uh, submerged in and raised to walk in newness of life, that old man's passed away. That old man's lifestyle has changed. And so that person who's raised to walk in newness of life doesn't do the things of the world, but is separated from those things. He chooses, therefore, if he's going to serve God, you choose not to do those things. 
The temptation is still there, but we choose to fight the temptation. Uh, one whose life doesn't conform to the world, but is transformed into the kind of person God wants. Transformed into the kind of person, it doesn't conform, doesn't look like doing those things in the world that you could see that I don't do those things or you don't do those things, that everybody would see that. And transformed into the kind of person that God wants to shape and mold instead of letting the world shape and mold us. Romans 12, verse 2. So God can declare people righteous and just only if something is done about their sins. That's the key. If something is done about sins, then we can be declared righteous in God's eyes. That we can be declared just, but only if something's done about sin. So I really want to talk about all that, to talk about justification and being justified. And justified, we've already defined it a little bit, to render innocent, righteous, acquitted of all charges. And I don't know who wrote it, and I didn't cite it, but somebody wrote, given right status before God. Given right status before God. No sins held against you anymore. That's what justification is. That's what being justified is. So I want to look at the things now that justify us, that, keep, that, that help us then. In Romans chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. God shows us he loved us. How did he do that? Because Christ died for us. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. And so we can say that those who are justified are justified by his blood, by the blood that was shed for us. And we're, as a result, we're saved from the wrath that we deserve. We should be punished. Matt talked about that before the Lord's Supper. That he took the punishment instead of us. So we should be punished, but we are saved from that wrath by the blood of Christ. So we're justified, as it were, by the blood. <clears throat> In James chapter 1 and verse 24, 21, he says, Therefore, Lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul, to save us from the wrath that we're just due. Justly we'd be due. We're guilty. But his word, the implanted word in the hearts of men can save us from the sins that we're guilty of. In Titus, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, Paul writing, he says, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which, he com which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. So this justification also has something to do with faith. 
according to the faith of God's elect, the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. So God has promised eternal life. And the, the how of it is manifested in the preaching of the gospel. I don't know the last time I used the word in a conversation of manifest. I don't know. I just don't use that. But he made known God's will to us through the preaching of the gospel. And you think of the 12 men who began after Jesus is raised and gone into heaven, back to heaven. The 12 men started it all by preaching. And guess what happened when the the disciples were spread in Acts chapter 8. They all went everywhere preaching. And here it's still happening today. The preaching of the gospel. Look at something. Just a thought has occurred to me while I was getting this lesson up of, of two men. And I'll have the scriptures up here, but it's in Luke chapter 18 verses 10 through 14 it says two men went up to the Jesus is giving this parable two men went up to the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself God I thank you that I'm not like other men extortioners unjust adulterers or even as this tax collector I fast twice a week I give tithes of all that I possess and the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So two men go into the temple to pray. And this Pharisee, in his mind, he prays, as it says, with himself. You see, he's so good, really, he doesn't need to be there. God, I thank you, I'm not like other people. Look how good I am. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Look how, look how good I am. He's wasting his time. The tax collector, one who the Pharisee would look down on one who he would have no association with him because this man works for the Roman government. Therefore, he's an enemy, basically, of the Pharisees, of all good Jews. This Pharisee, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. This man, by his attitude, is a lot different from the Pharisee who's praying with himself. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I didn't read verse 9, but it says, Also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and despised others. So that's the Pharisee. I should be like the publican. God be merciful to me, for I'm a sinner. In Titus chapter 3, verse 7, that having been justified by his grace, we shall become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. 
justified, made guiltless, if you will, by grace, by God's favor toward us, us extended in Christ Jesus, extended in the blood that was shed for us. And that justifies us uh, that we should become heirs, that we would have an inheritance when this life is over, supposing we live right, of course. Turn with me to Romans 3. Romans 3. Verses 21 through 28. Romans 3, verses 21 through 28. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who, to, to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. So we're justified, as it says, freely by his grace through the redemption that comes through Christ Jesus. His grace, his favor is extended to us through Jesus. And what was he for us? He was a propitiation by his blood through faith. A propitiation, a word that I don't use in a conversation. You probably don't either, unless it's religious conversation. But just everyday conversation, we don't use that. He's an acceptable sacrifice, an acceptable replacement for me, for my sins. He took those things and took them upon himself. And all this is done that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. A man is justified, it says in Scripture, by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Justified by his grace, justified by faith, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, that's that blood that was shed for us again, if you will, himself, the lamb without spot or blemish. In Romans 5, 1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So what is it being justified by faith? Is it just the, the mental knowledge of who God is? I believe him. I believe he lives. Is that it? Is that what faith is? Is that biblically describing In Romans chapter 2, staying in Romans, Romans chapter 2, in verse 13, it says, For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Well, I thought we were justified by faith. Well, we are. 
we're also justified by doing the law, doing what God said do. They work together. As an example of showing that, we have it on the board, James chapter 2, verses 21 through 26. I kind of broke it up in colors so it would be easy to pick apart. James 2, 21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out, on the, out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. We understand that when the spirit leaves the body, someone dies. At that moment, that instance, all works together. In the same way that faith without works is dead faith. And he uses an example of Abraham. When he offered his son on the altar, God told him, you go take your son, your only son, and you, you offer him up to me. Abraham goes early the next morning, goes, takes him with him, takes the stuff for the, for the fire, for the, uh, the offering, for the uh, wood, all that. And it says, and by his faith, by works, his faith was made perfect. Abraham believed God. That's faith. He believed God. And then he did what God said to him. And by that, his faith is made perfect. And he's called the friend of God. In Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There's no condemnation, no adverse sentence to those who are in Christ. How? What reason is there? Why? Because they don't walk according to the flesh any longer. But they do walk according to the Spirit. So I just want us to, what have we seen in this? We're seeing that those that are justified are acquitted of all charges. There's no guilt held against them any longer. That they're justified by being humble in God's sight. Uh, this man, in the, in the, this uh, tax collector, wouldn't so much as lift his eyes to heaven, beat on his breast, Lord be merciful to me, a sinner. Not like the arrogance of the Pharisee. We're justified by his word. We're, we understand that we learn about God through his word by departing from iniquity, by quitting doing those things that God held us in, uh, against us to begin with. We're justified by faith, justified by grace, justified by his blood, and by obedience to him. All those and without any of those, any of those are left out, then we're not justified, it seems. James chapter 
I mean, Romans chapter 6, verse 7. For it says, For he who has died has been freed from sin. He who has died. What? Again, Romans 6. Hearkening back to verses 3 and 4, the, the baptism, the raised to walk in newness of life, that death, that old man died, and that new man is raised. He who has died has been freed from sin. Interesting. This word freed right here means justified. Sin's gone, freed from sin, sin's taken away, sin's remitted, sin's forgiven. We're freed from sin, just in God's eyes, because he's taken the guilt on his son, and we live for him. So have you been baptized to be freed from your sins, been baptized to have your sins washed away? That's what it means. If yes, you're just in God's eyes, unless something is wrong in your life. If you need to be uh, to to come to Him in whatever manner, for whatever reason, for baptism or for a public matter, why don't you come while we stand and while we sing?